The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And then they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. As we remain standing, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, for the hope we have in his resurrection from the dead, and for the life we share with him now. Pour out your grace on us that we might know him in his risen glory this day and evermore, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. There is a garden in Jerusalem that I'd like to tell you about. It lies north and west of the old city, just outside the walls of Jesus' day. The garden is enclosed by buildings and a short stretch of fence, and it's hidden from the streets around it. The neighborhood is Arab and Muslim. A mosque stands less than a block away, its lone minaret draped with loudspeakers that blast the call to prayer out five times a day. When the muezzin chants the call to prayer, his voice echoes off the inner walls of the garden in what feels like an aggressive attempt to claim the space. But when he stops, the echo fades and the garden remains. A large central bus station lies just beyond the garden fence. It sits below the looming face of an ancient rock wall where you can still make out the fading shape of what looks like a skull protruding from the rock. The bus brakes squeal as they pull into place, belching out black clouds of diesel smoke. Children play in the street, dodging pedestrians as the traffic rolls by. But in the garden, everything is still. It has a silence that pulls you in amidst the chaos of the surrounding streets. The scent of blossoms and fresh-turned earth beats back the stench of diesel. A meandering path takes you by the source of an ancient spring and the crumbling remains of an old wine press, reminders that what is now a garden was always a garden of sorts. At the bottom of the path, there is a large limestone wall, and cut into the wall, there is a low rectangular opening into an ancient tomb. Centuries-old graffiti marks the wall, a fish, a crusader cross, Greek lettering. Outside the tomb, an ancient rolling stone leans against a low rock wall, once used as a barrier to keep out animals and grave robbers, 
it now lies superfluous on its side. Because when you stoop to enter the tomb, you discover that it's empty. We visit graveyards and we go to tombstones to pay our respects to those whose bodies are buried there. We gather in the presence of the dead to remember and to grieve, but this particular tomb, it's different. We go there precisely because it's empty. And we go not to mourn, but to rejoice. Could it be the tomb of Jesus, the actual tomb? Well, there's a decent case to be made that it is, but no one knows for sure. And I'm not sure it matters all that much. The power of the place isn't in what's there or what might have been there, but in what is definitely not there. And that is the body of Jesus. That morning all those years ago when the women made their way under cover of darkness to the tomb of their friend, they were expecting a body. They knew that they were headed to the place of death and as they walked in silence, they battled despair. For three years, these women, along with the other disciples, had followed Jesus everywhere. They'd hoped that he would be the Messiah. They had hoped that he would be the one to reign forever and redeem his people. But now he was dead. And although he himself had raised the dead, they had seen it with their own eyes. They knew that if he could die, if he could die, then hope itself had closed its eyes forever. Death has this power over us. We all know that we must die. And yet we're so busy with life that we put off thinking about it as best we can until it intervenes in the form of a grave illness or when it takes a loved one. Death can be astonishingly swift or it can be agonizingly slow. And it comes for all of us. But the women who made their way to the tomb that morning, they hadn't seen it coming. Instead of saving the nation, which they thought he was on the verge of doing, Jesus had instead been brutally murdered. The Jewish council persuaded the Roman governor that he was a threat to the empire, and less than 24 hours after being arrested, he was dead. Every hope they'd ever had was dashed that awful day. Jesus was killed and he was laid to rest in a borrowed tomb before the sun could set on Friday. It was now Sunday morning, early dawn, and when the women arrived, they were shocked to find that the stone had been rolled back. The tomb was empty, and Jesus' grave clothes were lying strangely to one side. Grave robbers would have taken the valuable linen. Animals would have torn it to shreds. Nothing about the scene made sense. Standing there in utter confusion, they were joined by two men, resplendent in shining clothes, angels sent by God. And the angels said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but has risen. Why do you seek the living among the dead? The truth is, they weren't looking for the living. Their hope had been extinguished when the light went out of Jesus' eyes. They weren't looking for the living, they were looking for a body, and they had come to mourn. That's the hold that death has on us. Though some spend their lives avoiding the thought of it and others spend their lives fearing it, none of us can unimagine it. It simply is until it wasn't. He's not here. He has risen, said the angels. And with those words, everything changes. The women had no framework for this. 
And when they reported what they'd heard to the disciples, the men, they brushed it off as an idle tale, a term used to describe the delirious mutterings of the desperately ill. Not even Jesus' closest friends were ready for him to rise from the dead. The irony, of course, is that Jesus had told them on multiple occasions that this was going to happen. As the angel said to the women, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? But they hadn't understood. Nothing, it turns out, could have prepared them for the reality that death didn't have to be final. But that's what they were discovering firsthand. They entered the tomb expecting death, and they emerged to learn that life had triumphed. That's the good news of this morning. Death doesn't get the last word. Jesus does. And he is still speaking today, inviting us to peer into the empty tomb where he once lay and to believe in the miracle of resurrection and the hope of eternal life. On Good Friday... Jesus bore our sins on the cross. He took what separates us from God and he carried it with him into the tomb. Then on Sunday morning, he walked out alive and empty-handed, leaving our sin behind. I joined you in the grave, he says to us, and I buried your sin with the dead. Now you join me in life everlasting. That's the invitation of Easter morning. Easter morning is a shock to our systems. It invites us to reimagine the world around us and our lives within it. It is the ultimate confrontation. The angels at the tomb invite us to believe that there is life beyond death, which means that this life is just a preface to a life so glorious we can hardly imagine it. A life like springtime after the dead of winter or sunrise after the dark of night. I've been reading some books about Arctic exploration lately. I have no idea why. (laughs) One of the things that's most amazing to me is that as recently as the late 1800s, our understanding of the polar regions of the world was completely wrong. Some believed that the North Pole was just a block of ice, which, of course, it turned out to be. But most people actually believed in other theories. One popular theory was based on the idea that the earth is hollow at its core and that all of the waters of the oceans drain into the center of the earth before being pumped out through springs in a constant process of replenishing. According to this theory, the North Pole was the drain at the top of the world into which flowed the waters of the oceans. Now, the maps reflecting this idea are incredible and slightly terrifying (laughs) because they depict an enormous drain with water pouring in, encircled by a ring of ice. Another popular theory was that the top of the world was covered by a large polar sea fed by warm ocean currents that slipped under a ring of ice surrounding it. Again, the maps reflecting this theory are fascinating, featuring what looks like an enormous bald spot on the dome of the earth. I like this theory. 
What drove polar exploration for decades and led to the deaths of countless men was the idea that if they could just break through the ice, they would find an uncharted ocean teeming with life on the other side. It is amazing how our mistaken theories get mapped onto the world around us. In addition to those books on Arctic exploration, we have a book at home about the history of maps and map making. It's lavishly illustrated with color maps that span the centuries and circle the globe. One of the fascinating things about the making of a map is where the cartographer chooses to mark the center. In the earliest days of map making, one thing stayed consistent. At the center of every map was the home or the homeland of the one who drew it. It's human nature to place ourselves at the center of the world. Our lives, our hopes, our dreams, our fears, our work, our people. These things dominate our view of the world and they shape how we go about the breadth and depth of our lives. But what if the center of the world is elsewhere? What if we are being drawn as if by the force of gravity to a different center? What if every life that has ever lived circles the empty tomb of Jesus? That's the unavoidable conclusion of the Easter story, and it is the central argument of Christianity. It's what the women, perplexed and confused, came to understand when they saw Jesus in the flesh later that day. It's what Peter, who marveled at the empty tomb, came to see when Jesus spoke to him face to face that night. The empty tomb, with its promise of life eternal and its declaration of death's defeat, is the center of the world. Every other theory about life, death, and meaning that we have mapped onto the world around us is wrong. And that begs the question, what is the center of your world? What gives your life meaning? Where do you find purpose? When life gets hard, with whom do you hide? Where do you harbor your hidden hopes, your deepest dreams? When death rears its ugly head and you catch your breath in grief or in fear, where do you turn for comfort? I do not ask these questions idly. What lies at the center of your map matters. If the map by which you guide your life is wrong, you will never find your way in this world. Wandering, it can be fun for a season, but is no way to spend an entire life. We need to find not just a center, but the center, if our lives are going to make sense in this strange and chaotic world. The invitation of Easter morning is to mark your center at the empty tomb of Jesus. Why? Because on that day, death lost the last word. When Jesus rose, he rose to life forever. And he did so not solely as God to be worshiped, he did so as a man to be followed. When we come to the empty tomb and say to him, I believe, we're invited to follow him into that life that lives forever. That means reorienting ourselves around a new center. It means repenting of past and present wrongs. It means dizzying days of learning new ways of being. 
And it means stepping into a life that will one day step out of the grave to join Jesus in a new creation. It means drawing new maps. I can't help but think of that little garden in the center of Jerusalem, surrounded by busy streets, blaring horns, squealing brakes, the brazen sound of the Muslim call to prayer, the constant buzz of life, and the looming specter of death. There it sits amidst all the chaos of our striving world. There it sits in still and silent consistency with every path circling back to a limestone wall and an open door leading to an empty tomb. That empty tomb is the center of the map and it's the heart of the world. I joined you in the grave, Jesus says to us, and I buried your sin with me. Now join me in life everlasting. That's the invitation of Easter morning. I pray that you will receive it and rejoice. Amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.